creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Today on Culture Click, we stopped by No Name Bar for a night of storytelling. The event was inspired by the popular podcast, The Moth. Several different speakers told their own personal stories that ranged from more upbeat topics to heavy topics that were enlightening and inspirational. I'm Briley Harris. Stick around to hear a night of storytelling from local speakers at No Name Bar on Culture Click. Our, uh, our next speaker is Maya Williams. Oh, there's Maya. Come on up, Maya. Uh, I'm not sure what Maya's going to talk about, so this could be fun. But uh, Maya's a poet and essayist, and I don't know what else. I'm also short. Um, Thank you. All right, cool. I very rarely get to be on this stage. This is funny. This is fun. Hi. Hi, everybody. My name is Maya Williams. So for the few of you who know me, you probably know that I spent, well, maybe you don't know, so I'll explain it. I spent most of my 20s and a good chunk of my 30s working in low-intensity conflict zones in like the Middle East and Africa and Latin America. This is not about that, but it's relevant, just so you know that in the background. So... Hold on. Yeah, that's better. Okay, so yeah, this isn't really about that, but it's important to know that because I spent until about the age, I moved to Winona when I was 35, and uh, when I got here, having done all that work for so long, the thing that people asked me over and over and over again, other than why are you here, was why did you take all those risks? Like, why did you do that? Why did you take, why did you do that, right? That's, and it's a pretty decent question. Like, I worked in Palestine. I was in the Arab Spring in Egypt. I was with the Zapatistas in Chiapas. And I really couldn't ever answer that question why. I wrote a book about it. I still couldn't answer the question why. And I didn't, couldn't answer the question why because it seems so inherent to who I am that I didn't think about it in some sort of objective way outside of myself. Right? Um, So, when I was home, home is Washington, D.C., that's where I was born and raised. When I was home uh, last summer, this past summer, when I finally got to see my family again, got that vax, um, my mom was telling my daughter a story about my grandparents and this wild thing that my grandfather did. And when she was telling that story, it started to make a lot of other things in my life make sense. So I'm going to tell you that story, and then hopefully people will stop asking me that question. (laughs) So let's start. The year is 1958. My grandfather, who is black, in case none of y'all could have figured that part out, comes home. He lives in South Carolina, in rural South Carolina, on 100 acres of land. It was very rare at that point for a black family to own that kind of land anywhere in the U.S., nevertheless in South Carolina. But he comes home to his wife, his mother who lived with him, and his three children, my mother, my Aunt Diane, and my Uncle Pac. My mother at the time was six years old, my Aunt Diane was five years old, and my Uncle Pac was a baby at one year old. Okay, keep that in mind. He comes home and he announces to the family that, he, that there is a Klan rally about to happen about two miles from the house, and he is going to attend it. Now, y'all don't know my grandmother, and. That's a shame because she was an amazing woman. But one thing she was also was very outspoken, something else I probably inherited. And she let her husband know really quickly that he was not, under any circumstances, going to a Klan rally. Under any circumstances. Like, this was just not going to happen. But my grandfather, who also was pretty stubborn, um, decided he was. Now, let it be said, he'd probably had a few drinks by then because it was Saturday or any day that ended in Y, frankly. But he, decided, he was going. He was going, and there was nothing that was going to stop him. His mother tried to stop him. His wife tried to stop him. His father tried to stop him. Nothing was going to stop him. So 
as the day was getting darker, because this was in the fall of 1958, so, you know, it's about 6 o'clock. It's starting to get a little bit dark outside, and my grandfather is insistent. So my grandmother and his mother, who'd be my great-grandmother, obviously. Everyone called her mama, though, so that's how she'll be in the story. So mama and my grandmother say, fine, if you're going, then we're going. So... If my grandmother is going, then her children need to go because obviously they are all young. So she piles into a 1957 Oldsmobile 88, classy, uh, car. My grandfather at the wheel, his wife next to him, and in the back seat, my mother, my uh, Aunt Diane, and uh, their, their grandmother. So, And the little baby is sitting on my grandmother's lap. They ride out. Now let me explain something here. We still own this piece of land. We've owned it for, since right after the Civil War. And so when my mother was first telling me the story, because I obviously wasn't there for it, she explained to me that they just drove out, you drive out till you get to Highway 9, and then you make a left, and then you make another left, and then you're in this big field. I can picture the field. I've seen this field. So my grandfather drives out a couple of miles, gets into the field, takes the back road in, you know, because everyone knows the back road into any place, takes the back road in, doesn't go, and there's just lines and lines and lines and lines of cars. So he doesn't, he, he figures what he can do, because it's dark, is he can just go into the back and just sort of sit there in the back and watch. Can't be that bad. And then, and so he's there for a bit. My mother says that she remembers very clearly the burning cross. She remembers very clearly the white hoods and the white robes. She remembers very clearly hearing these people yelling. She didn't know what they were saying, but they were yelling something. And so they sit there for a few minutes. Maybe it's 20, maybe it's an hour. My mom's six, she doesn't have a sense of time. And then my grandfather at some point decides that he's gonna just curl back out, you know, and just, get out of there before, before the cars start leaving, before people notice that someone's there who probably shouldn't be there. <sighs> Turns the car around, goes back out the same way he'd come. Now, when he'd gotten in there, let it be said, there had been nobody at the entrance because he'd come in through the back way. But for some reason, as he was coming back out, of course, there were two men at the entrance, and they stopped him. Now... My grandmother is a very calm lady under crisis. It's something else that I have to say I earned from my family. And my grandfather, as well, could be cool as a cucumber. It was a, if you're going to be a landowner in rural South Carolina in the 1950s, you have to have a relatively cool head. <laughs> Just to be said. <laughs> so they pull out. The two, one man gets in the front of the car to stop the car. The other man comes to the side to the driver's passenger seat. My grandfather rolls down the window. He looks in there and says, boy, what you doing here? My grandfather answers something. I don't know what it was. I assume it was the correct answer. And then the man looks into the, looks into the car again, puts on the flashlight, starts looking around inside the car and says, wait, are you Ernest Lowry's boy? My grandfather nods his head, yes. The other man who's in front of the car comes over to the side, looks in and goes, yeah, that's Ernest Lowry's boy. They step back for a second, talk, and tell him, get out of here. That's the, that is the official end of the story. I asked my mother, well, what did they talk about in the car on the way back home? <laughs> like, <laughs> and my mother said, uh, they prayed. They prayed and they prayed and they prayed because if nothing else my family is, we are very God-fearing people, except for me, I'm an atheist, but they prayed. <laughs> Back to the present moment. When people ask me, why do I do the things I do? Why did I go to a war zone or two or three or however many? I mean, I could tell them because I was a journalist and I was a human rights worker, but I could have done that without taking those kinds of risks. I mean, I could have gone to Canada. But, <laughs> but the truth is that I believe that you find out who you really are and what you really value when you take a risk. Remember, it was 1958. There were sit-ins happening. 
There were bus, boy bus boycotts happening. The civil rights movement had just begun, and to be perfectly frank, my grandfather was angry. He was tired, and he was angry, and he had one of the biggest properties in town, and any white man could still call him boy. And not all protests are organized or sober, but in some way, I think my grandfather wanted to know what he valued and who he really was. And that's why I do what I do too. Thank you. Thanks, Maya. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, we had one other, <coughs> one other speaker lined up tonight who couldn't be here, and she hopefully is going to come next time, so hopefully that will be a next time. Uh, we're looking at January. Um, but <coughs> thank you. Thank you all for coming out tonight. I appreciate that. Um, so I got one for you. All right, so my story starts in uh, 2007. Uh, at the time, I'm teaching high school at a small rural school district in southwestern Minnesota that shall remain nameless. And one of the things I do, my favorite thing that I do is, is I'm the drama person there, and I direct the one-act play. <clears throat> now, if you don't know about the one-act play, uh, one-act play is a Minnesota State High School League-sponsored competition where schools put on a short play. Uh, a bunch of schools do that. And they get judged, ranked, and there are levels you can, you can move on to. Uh, the important thing to know about this story, for the purposes of my story, uh, two things. One is that the, you can do an original, sh uh, you can do a play that's written as a short play, you can do a cutting from a longer play, you can do original material, I've done all three in my time. And the important, the other, the very important thing is that uh, one of the things, with, and th again this was 2007, 2008, so I'm not sure that these rules are still ex exactly the same, but at the time, uh, one act play was limited to 35 minutes. You couldn't go over 35 minutes. Very, very strict with this rule. They had someone in the wings with a stopwatch. They would start at the beginning of your play, click it when you were done. And if you went over 35 minutes, it wasn't like you lost points. If you went over 35 minutes, even by a matter of seconds, uh, you were simply disqualified. You were out. Okay. All right, so this is 2007. Uh, it's kind of the height of what I thought at the time was the height of the Iraq war, um, Bush's war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I felt like I wanted to make a statement. I wanted to make an anti-war statement at that point. And so the play that I chose to put on that year is called Lysistrata. And I don't know how many of you know Lysistrata. Some of you do, obviously. <laughs> but very briefly, Lysistrata is an ancient, it's an old Greek play. It was written about 2,500 years ago. And the essence of Lysistrata is that uh, there's, I believe it's Athens is at war with uh, Sparta. And this war has been going on for a long time. And people are dying, and I don't think people don't even realize why the war is happening anymore. And the main character, Lysistrata, is a young woman of, of uh, Athens. And she decides that it's up to the women to put an end to the war, because the men aren't going to do it. And so she decides to recruit women, not only from her town, but from the, uh, the other city that they're at war with. And they come up with this plan that, that they are going to well, it's basically they're not going to have any sex with any of the men until the men end the war. That's the plan. Seems like a good idea. It should work. Um, so, uh, I wanted to display for a couple of reasons. One is I think it makes a very strong anti-war statement because it, it talks about how stupid and pointless war can be. And secondly, it is uh, most of the characters in the play are female. And if you know anything about high school theater, you know you get a lot more girls than boys coming out. Um, so I decided to do this play. Uh, we wrote a version. We took a couple. Obviously, this is 2,500 years old. It was written in ancient Greek. Uh, there are many translations available. We took a couple of those, wrote our own version, which we tried to make high school appropriate. And by doing that, the word sex was never mentioned in our play. We talked about withholding affection from your men, not being with your men, um, a lot of euphemisms. Normally I hate euphemisms, but I felt it was appropriate in this situation. Um, so we felt it was high school appropriate. So uh, we had auditions. Kids came for auditions. I explained the story to them. I explained what the play was about to them. I said, anyone's uncomfortable with this, 
maybe think about not auditioning. We're doing another play in the spring. Um, no one did. Everyone seemed to be fine with it. I had a, actually a pretty big cast that year. I think uh, I was looking back at my, my notes um, about the play. I think I had 12 girls and three boys in that play at that time, which was a pretty good-sized cast for us. Um, so uh, we start. Uh, the other thing about this is this takes place in the wintertime. We had auditions right after Thanksgiving break. Uh, we rehearsed through the end of the year and through January, and the first level of competition was end of January, beginning of February, somewhere in that, that area. Um, and what we did is um, the, the first level of competition for us was a subsection tournament. So there are eight schools in our subsection. Not all of them participated in doing a one-act play, uh, but those who did would get together on a Saturday. <coughs> uh, all the schools would perform. They had three judges who would come in. Judges would take notes. Uh, and then they would rank the plays. And then with the subsection tournament, the, the top two schools went on to the section tournament the following week. Okay, just so you understand the, the procedure here. Um, so the section tournament, you had eight schools, the, the best of the subsections, and just one of those went to the state level at that point. Okay. Uh, I'd never gone past subsections in the school that I was at um, because we weren't really very good. <laughs> A couple of the other schools in our, in our subsection were actually really very good. So, so anyway, we started doing this. Uh, the other thing you need to know about uh, wintertime in Minnesota in the high school is it's basketball season. Okay. The school I, I was at, um, basketball ran a very, very, very close second to Christianity as the <laughs> local religion of choice. Okay. It was close. Uh, so basically, no one cared what we did. No one paid any attention to what we were doing. So it's fine. Um, all right, so uh, we get to the week before our subsection tournament, which is on a Saturday. And I do, every year I did a public performance of their show uh, one evening the week of, before that just to give the kids a chance to perform before an audience, no matter how small that audience might be, uh, instead of having the first time they perform being for competition. So we do a performance, I think on a Thursday night, I think it was Thursday night, we did a public performance. Friday morning, <clears throat> I get called down to the principal's office. If you've been a student and been called to the principal's office, that's one thing. If you're a teacher and you get called on the principal's office, it seems worse to me. Someone saw the play, someone who was in the audience that, uh, the night before uh, called in and complained as they were offended by, they were offended by a particular scene in this show. And so the principal wanted to know what this was all about. So the particular scene he told me, he, he kind of knew from what this person had said, so I explained the scene to him. And the scene is this. It's one of the guys in the play, one of the, the men who's a soldier, comes back from the war, and he's only going home for the night. In the morning, he has to go back to the battle. So he wants to be with his wife. Okay? So uh, he comes in, and, he, and his, his wife is obviously is one of Lysistrata's women, and so they're telling her, don't, don't give in, don't be with him, don't just resist. Uh, and so she comes in, and he's, there's a scene between the two of them, um, and he says, all right, I'm home, let's do it, come on. And, and, and she's got a baby, they have a baby too. So she's holding the baby, and she's like, you're not in front of the baby. And he's like, oh, I'll get rid of the baby. So she goes off stage, comes back without the baby, he's like, let's do it. She's like, right here on the ground? He's like, yeah, I need a bed. So she goes off stage to get a bed. So she goes off stage to get a mattress, she needs pillows, she needs perfume, you can kind of see where this is going. Uh, she keeps teasing, teasing him with this. And he gets more and more frustrated, and at the end of the scene, she's like, ah, forget it, I'm out of here, you can take care of yourself. And well, we all know what that means, but. Uh, euphemisms, again, euphemisms. Um, <laughs> so, um, anyway, um, so I explained the scene to him. I said, it's a very funny scene. The kids play it really well. Um, they're a married couple. They don't have sex. The whole point of the play is they don't have sex. Um, and he's like, well, I need to see a copy of the script. I said, okay. So I go down to my room and I come back and I give him a copy of the script. <clears throat> and I get called back down to the office in the afternoon. And he says, well, Daryl, I read the script. This is absurd. You can't do this. And I said, well, first of all, I'm a theater guy. I know theater of the absurd. This is not theater of the absurd, but I wasn't going to go there. I said, I mean, I, I, 
I don't remember that I put up much of a fight at this point because I felt pretty defeated. Uh, he was totally telling us we couldn't do our play. Take, bear in mind, this is Friday afternoon. Our play is supposed to be tomorrow morning. I said, well, you have to tell the kids. I'm not going to tell them. He said, I'll tell the kids. So I go back to my room, manage to get through the last class of the day. And about five minutes before the end of the day, the announcement comes over the loudspeakers. Uh, one act play, castle, one act play, refuse to the cafeteria. So I get through the last few minutes of my class, the uh, bell rings, the kids leave. I walk down to the front of school, the front hallway, the principal's office is on the left, cafeteria is on the right. Uh, there are kids leaving. All of my kids, my theater kids, are in the hallway, uh, angry, tears. It's a bad scene. So I'm very apologetic because I don't know what I can do at this point. Uh, I, you know, he's making this decision. We, I, there's nothing I can do. Um, so. Uh, I decided I'm going to go home. And we had scheduled a, a rehearsal that night. We were supposed to have a rehearsal that night at 7, a last rehearsal before we did our play the next morning. Obviously, we're not going to do that because we're not going to perform. So I go home, and I'm home for a little bit, and I start getting phone calls. And I'm getting phone calls from school board members, school board members who have been contacted by my students, students who are in the play. All right? This is all them. They did all of this. <laughs> So they started complaining to the school board. I had a couple people on the school board who were pretty supportive of the theater program. I had a couple people whose kids had been in the theater uh, who had graduated the year before, but they were pretty supportive of, of that. So anyway, they work out a deal. Someone works out a deal with the principal that if we get rid of some of the offensive, we get rid of the offensive material in the play, we can do the play tomorrow. So I'm like, okay, we're going to meet at 7 for rehearsal, bring your scripts, we're just going to start cutting. So everybody comes in, get their script. We cut out everything we thought could possibly be offensive. Um, and we'll mention that. Um, again, we did a lot of euphemisms, but um, I, I co-wrote the script with one of the girls, one of the senior girls that year, who was going to be a theater major in, in, in college and actually works in part-time, at least in theater, up in the Twin Cities at this point. But and I wanted to give her some experience in doing that. So there were a lot of what she referred to as jokes in the script. So it wasn't my turn. <clears throat> so we start cutting. We just cut, we cut and cut and cut and we cut a lot of stuff. So we gutted this script basically. And so we were so we're missing a lot of the plot. We're missing a lot of <laughs> exposition that explains things. So what we decide is the kids all decide that uh, each of the characters, each of them, everybody's gonna write a uh, monologue for themselves to kind of cover what we're missing from the stuff we cut. So they kind of explain what's going on. And they also get a little bit meta because they talk about censorship and they talk about the powers that be, not letting them do what they want to do. <laughs> there, there are a couple of them that are they're quite cutting. Um, so the kids all do that. I said, okay, great. Uh, it's getting late. Let's, let's run through this. I'm just going to time it. We'll run through it, do the monologues, and we'll see where we're at. So they do a run through, and we're at about 42 minutes or something. Well over time. <laughs> so I said, okay, we've got to cut some more. We can't cut any more of the script because that was... It's pretty well gutted. So let's reduce these monologues a bit. So they do that again. So they do that. Uh, oh, meanwhile, the, the principal did come by that evening. To, he was going to come by to watch rehearsal. Um, <clears throat> let me back up a second and explain that. Um, he's also the, art, the uh, what are they called, activities director for our school, the AD, which used to be athletic director until they saddled them with this crazy arts people that they had to deal with. Uh, so as the AD, he had to have signed off on this play in the first place, in the form, which he did. And every year, he did the same thing we did every year, is I bring this, this form down to the office. And he says, Daryl, what's the play about? And I tell him a couple sentences of what the play is about. And he said, when did I see a rehearsal? And we make up some date. And he signs the form. He never watched it. He didn't, you know, that's basketball season. So, <laughs> so anyway, so he was going to come by to, to watch rehearsal that night. So he came by listen to a couple of monologues that the kids did. He's like, you're fine, you can do this. I'm gonna come and watch tomorrow. I'm like, okay, that's a first. <clears throat> so we run through, okay, so we run through, so they go through and they cut it again, and they run through uh, a second time. I'm gonna come and time it again. You run through a second time, and at that point we were good. We came in like 33 minutes or something, so we we're just under time, so we were good. And, uh, and this, now it's about 11 o'clock at night. <clears throat> we have to be on a bus at like 6.30 in the morning to go to this other school where we're gonna perform. So, kids go home. I said, go home, get some sleep, 
you can use these monologues, you can, you can read them when you perform, and they're like, nope, we're gonna memorize. They all, they all memorized all their monologues by the next day. I think they were doing them on the bus on the next day. <coughs> so we go to the next day. <coughs> Excuse me. So we go to the performance on Saturday, our subsection performance, and there are five schools participating. And we, get, we go first, it's a random draw. We end up going first. So we go first, the principal does come, he watches our show and then leaves. Uh, we all stay and watch everything because that's what you do. And uh, <clears throat> we get ranked fourth out of the five plays that performed that day, which is exactly where we should have been. I mean, I watched all five, that's, that's where we deserve to be. Which always makes me wonder about that fifth place play that wasn't even as good as a play we essentially put together the night before. I, I just wonder. All right. So if that were to be the end of the story, it's kind of a sad ending, but there's more. <clears throat> the next fall, I am at a conference for theater and speech coaches in our region that I go to every year. And it's, a, it's you know, different uh, high schools around the area. <clears throat> so there's a, a welcoming session, and then there's these breakout sessions. And one of the breakout sessions is about Censorship, and I thought, I'm gonna to go to that. <laughs> so I go to the session and, and uh, the facilitator asks, anybody here any experience with uh, censorship in your theater program? I, said, I have a story. So I tell them what happened to me, and I get a lot of sympathy and a lot of you know, good wishes because these are my people. And uh, I think, okay, that's, I feel, I'm feeling a little better about that. Uh, Later in the day, someone stops me in the hallway and they say, so-and-so is looking for you. You're the guy who told the story about Alyssa Stroud. And I said, yeah. And so, so-and-so is looking for you. It's the director from one of the other schools. And I didn't know him. I maybe knew the name. I maybe had heard of him, but I didn't know the guy. And I said, while I'm around, he can find me. Itchy does, and he's, he wants to know the story. So I tell him the story of what happened to us. He said, my kids, my theater group and kids, my drama kids at my school and I were trying to come up with a, we are going to do an original show this year. I think we want to tell your story. <laughs> so they do. <laughs> so they put together a play based on what happened to us called Lysistrata Interrupted. <clears throat> we set up a clandestine meeting on a Saturday morning where he comes down with a bunch of his kids to the school. I come into school in my room, all my drama kids come in. A couple of kids who had graduated, and just happened to be home because it's just before Christmas, so they were able to come. So he wanted, you know, he wanted his students to be able to talk to my students because they're essentially going to be playing them and find out kind of what's going on with them. So uh, anyway, so, uh, so, they do, so they're going to do this play. Uh, at some point, the superintendent from my school gets wind of this, and he's not happy, never is, but... Um, <laughs> He said, I don't think they should be doing this. I'm like, hey, man, this is not your call. <laughs> you have no power here. So, sorry, they do their thing. Uh, they do really well at their subsection tournament. They go on in sections the next week. They take first place at their section tournament. <laughs> Which, if you remember, means they're going to perform this for the state level. So the state, uh, the, the state uh, one act is not really, a, it's not a f uh, tournament because they don't rank plays at the state. It's more just of a festival everybody gets to perform. They do have, um, they do have judges and they get comments, but it, they don't rank them. And so that comes up at the end of February, middle of February. And at that point, I'm no longer at that school, but uh, for other reasons. Um, but I want to go because I want to see the show, and I, I love going to the One Act Festival anyway because it's so much fun. It's, it's so great. So I go to the, the One Act Festival, uh, which is at St. Kate's uh, up in uh, St. Paul. And I'm sitting out kind of with them back, and I'm sitting around, and there's a bunch of people that I kind of know who are sitting there, and they're like, oh, I heard this play, Alyssa Strata interrupted, it's based on a real, real something that happens in a real play. And I said, yeah, that was me. I'm like, wow, really? I was like, yeah. <clears throat> so I'm sitting there. Uh, also, here's a little, uh, I don't know if this is a little unknown fact about the Minnesota State High School League. If you're involved in an activity as a student, you're allowed to take a day off of school to go to the state tournament, or festival in this case. Um, whether your team is there or not, you can go. So I'm sitting up and kind of in the back, and I see a group of my kids, my former students, come in and they sit in the front row. And they get to watch this show about what happened to us, which I thought was pretty cool. <coughs> um, so again, they don't rank them, but they have someone, they, the judges give comments, 
And at the end of it, uh, someone comes out on stage and they just talk a little bit about what, what you've just seen while they're changing sets and stuff in the back. So, so someone comes out and she's like, wow, that was pretty interesting. Um, I heard that that was based on a real story. Is, that, is there anybody that was at a different school? Is anybody from that school here? All these kids in the front row right there. <laughs> Um, so they get they get to talk about it. They you know they get a little feedback there. They get to talk about it. So ends up with a little bit of more closure than uh, not having to be able to perform the play that we originally wanted to do. So anyway, thank you. You're listening to Culture Click on eighty nine point five KQAL. Do you love podcasts but crave local content? Well, now you can keep it local with KQAL podcasts on KQAL.org. Hear interviews with Minnesota bands, artists, chefs, comedians, historians, community leaders, and more. KQAL podcasts, keeping it local on KQAL.org. Also listen to KQAL on Spotify, Apple, Google, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, I ain't going no you're listening to Culture Click on 89.5 KQAL. All right. We have a couple of names here. We have some time. Someone wants to come up and share a little story with us? Shirley. <laughs> All right, Shirley. I'm really nervous. So I'm gonna start this out by saying, um, I've just come through, I know some people in this room have gone through something, I've heard some stories that allude to it. I've just come through a dark night of the soul and it was profound and it was life changing and I'm a different person than I was six months ago. And this story that I'm going to tell you is connected to the healing that I've gone through in this experience most recently. I didn't know at the time that it was connected. I need to just take a breath. <laughs> I am so nervous. Okay, so this story is true. It is an experience that I had with my person at the time. It took place in September of 2020. Um, we went up to, uh, and let me just say that this goes on and on and on through different experiences that I'm having today. So I'm just gonna ask for some benevolent guidance that I'm gonna know when to stop. Um, so in September 2020, my person and I went to a music fest up in Superior, Wisconsin, and we didn't wanna stay in a hotel. We were really big into the outdoors because that's what um, the pandemic forced us into and it was the most fantastic gift ever. We spent the summer on the river and just outside in forests and camping and it was beautiful. So, why would we hotel it in this case? And we found this wilderness area that's supposed to be, you know, leave no trace kind of camping. And so we head out on the trail with our packs on our back and I had borrowed a canoe from a family member and we're looking for a place to set camp. And it's like, oh, we're gonna have to clear forest here. This is just not good. And so we, <laughs> so my person looks out over the lake. Now we had parked our car kind of by the canoe launch and walked a trail around the opposite direction. And he looks out, and all you see across there is pine trees and a bank. I think that looks clear. I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> it can't be more dense than this, so let's give it a try. We get in the canoe, and we paddle over to this kind of peninsula, not quite an island, and it is the most fabulous camp you've ever seen, especially in a wilderness where you're not supposed to leave any trace. It was swept. The campfire had like half burned logs in a perfectly set out place to dry your clothes, perfect place for tents, perfect place to use the bathroom that's not too far away but far enough. And it was ideal. In fact, the first day after we got our stuff there, we just sat there like, can you believe this? Like this camp is unbelievable. And the first night was the first weird occurrence that happened and it wasn't too big a thing. But we're standing at the campfire and the trail went behind our camp, about 100 feet behind. And someone comes in the dead of night, running, carrying a lantern, and they drop it, like, just behind camp. We're close enough, we should have said something, they should have said something. Nobody said anything, because it felt weird. 
and they scramble and they get their light and we watched them run all the way around the lake and out to where our car was parked. And it was kind of like, huh, that was weird. And the next day, we head off to the big city of Superior for the music fest and it rained, there was no sun at all and we'd put up like solar lights around camp. We're like, oh, that was worth it. And we went to this fabulous music fest and before we left, where the canoe launch was, there was some gentleman who had bear camp. They were hunting bear up there. And he said, can we leave our canoe at your camp so we don't have to put it on the car and take it with us? Oh, sure, sure. And then during this time, they're telling us that they had caught um, mountain lion on their trail camp. They're up here, you know, they're up here. I'm like, okay, good to know. We go to the music fest, we have a great, great time, even in the rain, and it stopped, it was great, it was wonderful. We come back in the dark of night, and it's super dark. It's really dark. There's no moon, there's no stars, there's nothing, and it's been cloudy all day long. We get our canoe from camp, and we set off, and while we're wearing are these headlamps, and all you could see is the dust in the air. Like, that's all the light was showing us. I'm like, you gotta, you gotta shut your light off to see in this dark. And you could just barely make out a tree line. I remembered that the lake kind of went like a bottleneck. Like, I think I see the weeds. And once we get out there, maybe we'll know the way. And my person, like, oh, just intoxicated. And I'm holding it together. And we get out into the main part of the lake. And I'm thinking, well, there's no way at this point. It's just pitch black. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. And this light flashes. And it's really intermittent. It's not at a regular interval. I'm like, well, what do you think that is? Well, it's the only thing we can see. Let's head that way. And so we did. And we got to the bank, Drunky and I, and got out of our keelless canoe without a hitch, just like butter. Like, oh, that was fabulous. We were guided right to our camp. It was our solar lights flashing, even though they didn't have light of day or the sunlight all day, that still let off this flash. And we went to sleep and it was just wonderful. So our third day, we had no plans. We were just spending our day at camp. And about four o'clock in the afternoon, I go back to my potty spot, which was just far enough and not too far. And my person went the opposite direction to get firewood for our fire that night. And while I'm squatting, I had the most visceral, tremendous terror flow through my body. I I'm not a fearful person at all. I don't fear death. I don't fear much. I don't even fear my children's death. And I was scared out of my mind and trying to hitch up my pants as fast as I could and I ran to camp and I'm just shaking. And my person is kind of a nervous Nelly sometimes so I didn't want to be like, oh my God. But he's running back to camp at the same exact time that I am with the same exact look on his face as the way I feel. Neither of us said anything. And about four hours went by, we had dinner, we had our fire. And finally it's eight, nine o'clock at night and I said, that's it, I cannot take it anymore. I am so uncomfortable, I am so uncomfortable. Something's wrong, something's here, something's awful. And he's bent down, I don't know how to do this, so I'm just gonna do this. He looks up at me and he says, like we're being watched? Oh, my whole being just crumpled because the terror now that I could write off as imagination or something, I'm a deeply feeling person, maybe I just feel too much. But it's being reflected back to me from another human being who's saying words that I haven't said out loud and feels the exact same thing that I do. And then we spent the next few hours just in terror together. We're too afraid to say the things that we're thinking this might be because we're too terrified that it might be. I mean, we're saying things like, when we get back to the car tomorrow, I'm going to tell you about, or remember, I'm going to, you know, this moment, I'm going to tell you about this when we get in the car. Or like for hours, this went on. And we, we danced around different things. But this feeling, I have never experienced anything like in my life. It was sinister, and it was terrifying, and it was visceral. You know, the hair standing, I'm even talking about it. I have tinglys and hair standing up on ends. So we, we would kind of dance around, this is something otherworldly. This is not from around here. And we're trying to fit it in with those men at bear camp saying that there's a mountain lion on their trail camera. And maybe it's a bear. Maybe it's something stalking us, you know, like an animal. But I kind of came to animals don't feel sinister. Animals hunt to survive, not to terrify. 
And we went on for hours like this. And finally, it came time. I said, you know, we either get in the canoe and go back to the car and get the hell out of here, or we go to the tent and kind of pray that we just survive. And I forgot an important part. Like, it was understood, even without saying it, that this, this was something beyond us, beyond the 3D world. And we did things. I'm not a religious person, but I, I believe in, in big things. And we did things. We held hands, and we said what we were grateful for, and we talked about things that brought us joy. And I imagined throwing light around the camp through my head because I felt so unsafe. It was, it was unreal. So we chose to stay in the tent because getting out on the lake didn't feel any safer. And before we went in the tent, you know, the feeling, the sinister feeling was coming from behind camp. And our fire and the lake are to our backs. And we're looking up at the trees that are illuminated by the fire. And as we're looking up, there are two red lasers in the tree. Like, this is real, not intoxicated. That really is a scene. And we're trying to fit it into this, this otherworldly supernatural experience that we're having. Like, well, does Sasquatch have lasers? I don't know. Like, <laughs> this is just beyond me. And then, and then we had the discussion, well, we're going to stay in the tent. So again, I'm, we're saying some version of prayers and throwing light and just hoping that we wake up in the morning. And we went into that tent, these two terrified human beings, and we slept like the dead. I, I have been afraid as a child, like in, in these kind of terms, and I didn't sleep all night. I just laid there and shook, like thinking about Malachi from Children of the Corn or something like that. But in this case, we slept and we woke up and the whole feeling was gone, like nothing had happened. It was unreal. So then we were able to start talking about all those things that we were gonna tell each other in the car. And we ironed out like, well, this is otherworldly. This is just beyond. So this experience, while it sounds like a wild story, was, like I said, really visceral and real. And, and another person was validating the feelings that I was having. So we came back from this trip, and I told everybody this story. I was going to get up here and tell you that I hadn't rehearsed this because I had no plans to tell a story tonight, but I have told this over and over and over because it was so profound. One of the people that I was telling is kind of an intuitive soul, and he says, have you ever, it sounds like that Native American legend. Have you ever heard of, it's like something about excess or something. So he just looks that up on Google, and it comes up with the Wendigo. And the Wendigo is an evil spirit that um, indigenous people of the northern uh, Wisconsin, northern Minnesota, and southern Canada. And it is kind of the amalgamation of, of white men's excess. And the more this evil thing eats, the bigger it gets, and it can never, ever be satiated. And the descriptions that I read of this thing just seemed to fit the feeling of this experience entirely. So it became the Wendigo story. So, you know, hey, did you tell them the Wendigo story? Did you tell them the Wendigo story? Well, fast forward to this summer, as my dark night of the soul began, I, was, I sought out every type of healing. I can't handle feeling like I'm coming undone for extended periods of time. And throughout this healing process where I was exploring, I go to all different places, you guys. I'm all over the place. I went to a different lifetime. And in that lifetime, I'm in a cage in a tree. And I'm watching these beautiful, beautiful beings come from the forest, luring people into camp. And when they crossed over to camp, those beautiful beings turned into the monsters that they were. And I saw them do the most horrific things to all these people that they brought to camp. And somehow I'm complicit in this because I'm still alive in this cage. And that's, that's what came through this healing. And it came after I came out of this meditation, I nearly came undone. And I'm saying to my practitioner, Oh my God, I came into contact with one of these things in the Northwoods of Wisconsin for real in this life not more than eight months ago. And it shook me to my core. Because again, like, we can know things that can't be explained, but we still know them. I knew this. And as I went through the dark night of my soul, I was called to go back up to that lake. And I went by myself. I put my kayak in my car and I went up. And I. I said some prayers then too. I stopped at my vacation chiropractor, of all people. 
and he just happened to have time when I was blazing through town, and I'm telling them this. They're like, well, what are you doing up here? It's not vacation time. I'm putting to bed a real-life ghost story. Something happened to me up here, and I need to, I need to heal it. And so we talked about it, and it turns out he'd been uh, involved in several different ceremonies, healing different lands with different energies that just needed to be cleared and released. And we got to the point where he was talking about present day, how people are behaving in this specific area. And the word smarmy kind of comes to mind, just like kind of base human, the worst, the worst parts of ourselves. We're all showing themselves in a concentrated area. And he said to me, and you know, surely... The thing that's making it the worst up here are the drugs, the drugs. And when this man said this, it was like a bolt of lightning came through my body. And I knew in that moment that that camp, that pristine camp that was set up so nicely was a drug runner's camp. It's why it was swept. It's why everything looked exactly the same when I got there later that day. And those lasers in the trees those were lasers from scopes on rifles pointed at us. We were in such grave danger on both fronts. Could feel the sinister energy from behind camp. That was real. It was visceral. It was felt by two human beings walking the earth right now. And then there was the physical presence of the drug runners, and we were in their turf. And they didn't want us there. And we felt it on both sides. Again, this is where I have to stretch, or maybe I'm asking you to stretch. Sometimes we just know things that we don't know how we know them. And as I'm going up there, I'm the mother of two small children. I have a six-year-old and a nine-year-old, and it never occurred to me that I shouldn't go. I went even after having this realization at the vacation chiropractor's office, and I had brought my offering of tobacco and whiskey and corn, and my intention to heal something in myself and something that happened there. And I parked my car and I only became afraid the moment I was taking my kayak off of my car. And so I imagined the light around me and I, I reminded myself of the intention that I had and that really it's pure and nothing can touch me no matter what. And I paddled over to camp and it was like walking into a time capsule. It was swept exactly the same way, the same sweep marks. The wood was burned exactly in the same position. The tent spaces were the same. The foliage seemed the same, even though I was there in a different month. It was unreal, but there was no sinister presence. And I offered my gratitude to those who came before me. And I had learned through this process there was tremendous indigenous genocide in this area of the country where this myth exists, this Native American legend of the Wendigo. And I released something there. After that day, I felt different. After that day, that thing, whatever it was, no longer had a hold on me. And I stand here among my new 50 new best friends, and I have such gratitude for you letting me tell this story in public. It means a lot to me, and I hope to, I hope to share it in a different form and with all the other things that I have unearthed uh, due to this experience. Thank you so very much. All right, there's, there's just one more name that was in that, in that uh, picture, so I think we really need to have, I think we have time for one more. One more story? And that was Charlene? Yeah, super short. Super short story from Charlene. I don't need everyone's story to be tomorrow how this 76-year-old face planted bottom up on her way up to the stage. Um, so this is a very short story, and it explains the entire 52-year marriage my husband and I have been in. Um, name any element that might stress a couple, and this story explains it. It's absolutely true. I exaggerate nothing. One day my husband and I were standing talking and he pulled his white 100% no frills cotton hanky out of his pocket and he began to blow his nose. And he's a serious nose blower. A lot of noise, a lot of head shaking and he 
proceeded to lay the hanky on his hand and fold it and fold it and fold it, did I mention he's an engineer, into its back perfect square and he slid it into his back pocket. And I, I kind of had become mute by this point, um, which is odd in our marriage. And because my dad, I watched this and I couldn't, I couldn't file it anywhere. We'd been married a long time at that point and I couldn't file having ever seen this, this thing happen before. My dad was also a honker, but when he died, and I was super close with my dad, one of the last things I found around his house when going through things was these wadded up hankies in his pockets and everywhere that I had grown up watching. So this whole foldy, foldy thing, and I said, do you always fold your hanky back up like that after you blow your nose? Uh, and he said, yes, why? Is that some kind of problem now? And I said, well, it could be. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, well, I hate to tell you, but when I find your hanky so neatly folded up like that in your back pocket and I'm doing the laundry, sometimes I just kind of take it out and put it back in the clean clothes pile because I assume you haven't used it. And he stared at me for a minute, and then he kind of started shaking his head, and he said, no wonder I can never get my glasses clean. Oh. <laughs> All right. Uh, those are your stealers. Thanks, everybody. Uh, it was a great experience. Um, hopefully, we'll do this again. Thanks again to everyone who participated in a night of storytelling at No Name Bar for sharing their personal stories today on Culture Click. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Riley Harris, and we've just heard part two of a night of storytelling at No Name Bar. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click. Culture Click.